So I was just checking out. I, I didn't realize how many books you have written. It, it's uh, I, I jumped onto your website and I was going through all your. I was like, "Holy cow! Like you've been, you've been a busy fella." Yeah, and they're not all on there. I don't have room for them. <laughs> really? Wow. So, yeah, but I, you know, I just I just like to write, and uh, I can't stand to sit around twiddling my thumbs. And so, if I've got spare time, man, that's what I'm doing. Sure. Yeah. So how do you, how do you even come up? Cause it, it seems like you sort of have a general genre, but there's so many different topics here. I mean, I, how do you come up with the ideas for all these different, you know, uh, they just sort of creep up on me, you know, and, and suddenly I think, yeah, yeah, I should do one on that. You know, I, sure. <laughs> I don't know. It just comes to me. Well, so, and I, you know, I, I've written some fiction too. So, uh, I enjoy that, but uh, most of my books are nonfiction, and they they tend to revolve around the true nature of reality and life after death and uh, reincarnation and stuff. You know, almost kind of woo, what my wife calls woo woo. <laughs> sure, sure. So, how do you so in something like life after death? Where do you even begin to research this? Because it well, seems you know, like it's it's amazing that there's been a a lot of research done on it. Uh, one of the biggest places where, as far as the amount of research that's been done, is at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. They've been studying uh, children's memories of past lives since uh, the early, well, 60 years, since the early 1960s. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have over 2,500 cases that they have investigated, most of which have checked out. And uh, they've also been researching near-death experiences and other kinds of, basically, the conclusion they've come to is that the brain does not create consciousness, that consciousness comes from somewhere else, and that the brain is a receiver of consciousness that integrates it with your body. So, you know, it's, but they're not the only ones that, that um, have been doing that kind of research. A lot of research on psychics and whether they can really communicate with the dead and stuff like that. So, you know, mm-hmm. and not, not in, like Duke University has done studies and uh, University of California at Berkeley. So that's some of my books really focus on the uh, research that's been done by really highly credible institutions and what they've found. Sure. Very little of it has been reported on in the mainstream media because I guess the mainstream media just doesn't believe it. So, <laughs> well, it's I can see that the mainstream media is its own uh, own creature. Yeah, it's its own thing. It, you know. So when you say they did studies with children that remembered past lives, yeah. What? So explain that a, a little more. So how do you uh, how do you yeah, separate yeah. something that's real from a, a child's? Uh, imagination or well good question because it's true that a lot of parents when their children start talking about something like that think that they're just you know making it up or dreaming or you know that it 
something they saw on television or whatever, and they don't they don't really pay much attention to it. But every once in a while, there's a, a situation that really can't be ignored. One case that comes to mind is a young. It usually happens when when a child starts to talk, mm-hmm. you know, around eighteen months to two years, and it typically lasts if it's a if unless the parents really squash it, it typically lasts until they're about six years old or so, and then and then they just kind of forget about it and go on and become a normal child. Well, they're a normal child all the time, but I mean, they just forget about it. But one case that I uh, report on in, in one of my books is a child who was born about 1999, I guess. And he uh, would have nightmares where he was screaming about his plane being on fire and not being able to get out. And his uh, parents, you know, were very disturbed because, you know, the child would wake up in the, or not even wake up, but be in the middle of the night screaming sure. and squirming and so on. And uh, they uh, started questioning him and all that. And it, there's, <laughs> it, he said that he was, he was a, uh, it came out that he was a fighter pilot in World War II and that he was shot down at the Battle of Iwo Jima. He, uh, and they were able to, he remembered the name of the aircraft carrier that he flew off of, the Natoma Bay. He remembered the names of other pilots that he was friends with. He knew all about um, the kind of airplane he flew, I think it was a Corsair. And all this information that there's no way that a two or three year old child possibly know. And they actually found, uh, went back and, Uh, so because it was 20 years ago, some of the people that were on that ship were still alive and he, they got in touch with them and the, the people who verified that, yeah, that's, he was shot down and that's how, how he described was how it happened. He actually was mm-hmm. hit by a uh, anti-aircraft gun, hit the nose, hit the engine of his plane and went down in flames. So, uh, that's just one of many cases, but it's one that's so graphic and in so many details that could not possibly have. Uh, for example, his his uh, his mother took him to an aerospace museum or something like that, where uh, there was a Corsair there, mm-hmm. and the Corsair had these uh, tanks that come down from the wings, and his mom said something like, oh, "Look." Uh, his name was John. John, the uh, that plane has you know bombs attached to the wings. He said, "No, no, mom, that's not. Those aren't bombs. Those are drop tanks. Drop tanks uh, filled with gasoline, and they <laughs> allow you to fly uh, the plane farther. You know, and then when you're they're empty, you just drop. They just release them and sure. drop. So you know that kind of stuff. So it, it's uh, so how uh, how long before this this child was born did this fellow pass away? Like obviously it was. It was so a long he was time, shot which down. Is unusual. Yeah, he was shot down in 1945. I think the Battle of Iwo Jima, if I remember correctly, took place in April of 1945. Okay. And uh, he was born in, I think, 1999. So that was a long time. That's unusual. Most of the uh, cases of children remembering past lives that have checked out 
uh, it was really a very short time between the death and the rebirth, 15 months on average. Sure. And it's usually a case like this one where it was some sort of an unnatural death, either killed in battle like he was or maybe in an automobile accident or war or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, something like that where their life was cut short. And they, uh, I guess they just come back quickly. So what's the thought there? Is it that same person or is this child tapping into some stream of consciousness? Like what? Well, you know, that's a good question. And nobody, I guess, can really answer that except that they do <clears throat> have very often very clear memories uh, of mm -hmm. what happened and friends they had and who they were married to if they were that old and, and uh, you know, what their children's names were. I mean, sure. It's it's uh, appears to be uh, that person whose memory just happens to be in, uh, intact. So do they do they kind of portray the same character? I can't say it. Characteristics of the the person that. Uh... Yeah, often they do. For example, when they first started doing this at the University of Virginia, the University of Virginia, there was a man named Ian Stevenson who's passed away now, but back in the 1960s, he was interested in this. And he was a, he's, was a psychiatrist, a teacher at the, I think he was head of the Department of Psychiatry at the medical school at the University of Virginia. And, but he was interested in reincarnation. And the man who uh, developed, uh, invented the Xerox machine okay. was also interested in it. And he gave UVA a big grant to study this. So when Ian Stevenson got all this money to go study it, he, he did a lot of research in Eastern countries like India and Thailand and uh, places where people believe in reincarnation, part of their culture. And uh, there it's much more common because uh, children of the, the adults don't, you know, tell the child he's crazy. Or <laughs> right, he's, right. He's, he's hallucinating or something like that. You know, they, they were likely to accept it. And one case, or more than one case that comes to mind was in Burma. And in Burma, uh, during World War II, uh, the Japanese, of course, there was a lot of fighting there, and the Japanese had overrun Burma. <clears throat> and uh, so there was a, and also in Burma, they tend to have food that's kind of spicy, mm -hmm. where in uh, Japan, you know, you have sushi and things like that that are that are not. Sure. So these children who claim, who they figured out were a reincarnation of Japanese soldiers who had been killed in World War II, did not like the Burmese food. <laughs> So, yeah, things do carry over. Also, things like uh, sexual preferences, where someone was a was a boy in his previous life and he comes back as a girl and he doesn't mm -hmm. want to be a girl. Sure. And I think we may be seeing some of that nowadays. So uh, it, it's, uh, it's true. And one of the things that's really amazing about it is the uh, birthmarks and so forth that some of these kids have. If they were killed, for, for, I'll give you one example, but th there was a whole book written by Ian Stevenson that documented over 200 of these cases where 
birthmarks, uh, things like somebody born without a with one leg missing, because they were uh, when they were killed, they lost that leg. You really? know, it was part, part of the accident. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but for example, there was this one case in, in India where the boy was uh, had a birthmark on his forehead that was round and on the back of his head that was like a big splat. And he remembered uh, driving, riding his bicycle to school. He was a teacher. He was a uh, teacher in a school and he was riding his bicycle to school and uh, he was shot uh, in the forehead and there was an exit wound like his uh, birthmark. Wow. And they, they, you know, they found the documentation of that with the pictures from the morgue and all that. So that's just one example. I mean, there's another one where the boy had a, uh, his fingers chopped off in a thrashing machine and he came back with a mangled really? uh, hand, things wow. like that. Pretty wild, pretty wild stuff. Why do you think in our culture... Uh, you know, especially, you know, over here, we're not as uh, prone to believe or, or taught to believe in reincarnation. I mean, a lot of us. Well, it comes from, it comes from, it's it, very clear to me what reason is. Uh, it's not part of the Christian canon and it's mm -hmm. not part of the Christian dogma uh, or beliefs because in I think it was the Second Council of Constantine in 553. I've seen done a little research. <laughs> the, the Emperor Justinian uh, basically told the Pope that he wanted reincarnation removed from the Christian canon. Because, and the reason is probably because, at least what I've read, people think it might be because... Uh, if people thought they were going to have another chance, you know, another go around to get it right, they wouldn't be as likely to follow the, uh, you know, the teaching of sure. the church or the, or what the, what the popes told them to do. Right. So, so, but you know, there's a lot of uh, references. They don't say the word Christ, uh, reincarnation in the Bible, but uh, there are verses in there that you, that clearly point to, the fact that Jesus and his followers believed in it. I mean, I'll give you one example of that, or a couple examples if you're interested. One is uh, when uh, Jesus's uh, followers, uh, Jesus asked them, uh, who do people say I am? And his followers said, said well, some people think you're uh, John the Baptist, and others think you're Elijah or one of the prophets. Well, Elijah lived 400 years before Jesus, and so did there was the last prophet that 400 years before Jesus. So if Jesus, uh, Jesus said, "Well, I'm not one of those. I'm, you know, mm -hmm. I'm I'm the Son of Man, or whatever he called himself," but uh, they clearly he didn't say it was impossible for him to be Elijah. Sure. And, and another example is when Jesus comes on the upon this blind man and uh, this man who had been blind from birth. And of course he cures him, uh, cures his sight, but the uh, uh, disciples were with him saying, well, 
uh, Rabbi, why was this man born blind? Was it did he sin or was it his parents? You know, they, they believed in karma, mm -hmm. and uh, so Jesus said, "Well, it wasn't either one of those, so that the glory of God could be displayed and something like that." <laughs> so, but anyway, so you were basically he was a born blind, <laughs> and he it was because of his own sin. Sure. He had to have some sort of pre-existence in order for that to be sure possible. So there you go. So how how connected? So you've obviously dug deep into this world. I mean, you just rattled off. Well, I'm just very interested in it. Yeah. So where do you end up? So it feels like there's a confliction between religion and maybe karma and reincarnation that is all connected, but conflicting at the same time. Like uh, there's, there's not so much a teaching, but sort of on all of them. Uh, well, I, you know, I don't want to step on any Christian's toes. I I, uh, my wife is a very strong Christian and she gives me a hard time about all of this, but uh, I think that Jesus was an enlightened individual. He was, uh, I think he really understood, if you really, if, if you have done the research I've done, read my books, and then you read the Bible and what Jesus said, it's pretty clear he knew what was going on. I mean, he, he said, the Father and I are one, which uh, means that he was in connection with this ground of being that creates everything that is really the an infinite mind and call it God if you want. But mm -hmm. it's really a very kind of Hindu idea of that, you know, the Hindus believe that Brahman is basic, basically consciousness or Veda is consciousness and that everything comes from that. And that really, I think, is what what the actual truth is but the problem is that the western religions judaism and of course christianity now and uh, islam see god as a as something separate from creation sure. that it's it's like a, a man or a being of some kind that created it all but he's he's not part of it i mean he sort of oversees it whereas the truth is that God or the consciousness is the, the mind is the ground of being. There's really one mind, which we're all part of. And that's the way the Hindus and the Eastern religions see it. So, you know, the idea of reincarnation is, uh, you know, part of their belief system. And really what I, the way I see it is that, the whole purpose of life and, and uh, is evolution, that we're all evolving. Everything is evolving. You know, plants and animals and trees are evolving, but sure. we human beings are evolving too. And we, we come back, you know, to experience and learn and have go through problems, you know, and learn from them. And uh, often when we may have a particular reason we want to come back, uh, but it's just an ongoing thing and, and uh, it's just the way things are. It's just that because of that council of Constantine in 555, we struck it out of our belief system and it hadn't come back. Although a lot, a lot of people now sure. buy into it. So isn't it interesting that pretty much every um, society through history has had some version of a supreme being or a supreme consciousness or whatever you want to call it, you know, American Indians yeah. to 
uh, Aztecs mm-hmm. to Christians to, I mean, everybody, everybody has a need to explain whatever that thing is that we can't quite put our hands on, but it seems like everybody knows is there somehow. Yeah. Everybody except, uh, some scientists who are scientific materialists who believe that nothing exists except matter. And there are people who, you know, atheists, that's what a lot of them believe. And I think they're totally wrong. I mean, how could it possibly, how could all of this been created by accident? It just doesn't, sure. you know, I mean, there's just too much. So what, uh, what, what always gets me is when people talk about, um, being an atheist and and then you start to get into um what if we're living in a simulation and this is the matrix at some point you have to go somebody wrote the matrix (laughs) everybody else calls him god (laughs) you call him the head developer you know so you know i have a book out not i wrote not long ago uh about you know are we living in a simulation and it to a atheist who doesn't believe in god you know then their idea, I suppose, is that everything came about by accident and this uh, very advanced civilization now is simulating our reality. <laughs> I mean, we're simulated by them. Whereas it does, you know, to somebody who thinks that, what we're living in does look like some sort of a computer simulation. Sure. For example, the DNA molecule, everybody knows that the DNA molecule is uh, a double helix mm-hmm. that has an awful lot of information encoded in it to tell the cell when to make proteins and how to make them and, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's got all that information in there. In fact, if you, if you took this, a tiny cell DNA and stretched it out, it would be six and a half feet long. And it would look, and it looks like computer code because it's information. Sure. Well, now that would lead somebody who believes there's no God and everything happened by accident to think, well, you know, some advanced civilization did that and that. Sure. But the fact of the matter is, it's it's the universal mind, it's the uh, cosmic mind that created that. I mean, how, I I was actually thinking about this very thing the other day, and this is the most random thought ever. But I was driving along and it was snowing and I don't even, maybe it was because I knew this podcast was coming up and I was kind of thinking about all this stuff. So I was thinking every snowflake is supposed to be different and there's probably a mathematical equation that you could work that snowflake backwards from whatever water vapor it was and the temperature and the wind and how it formed to make that specific shape. If you had enough time in a computer that would be able to, to do those calculations. And then you could probably back it up that it fell so many feet and it went through this temperature change and it landed in this area and it came from that. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it was a predestined mathematical calculation to put that snowflake there, that somebody made that happen, just that you can view it through the lens of mathematics going backwards. And I feel like there's, a, there, there's some trickery that gets hard to decipher between something that was, uh, you know, maybe I, whatever you want to call it, fate or um, free will, that that just sort of formed and fell in this direction, as opposed to we are running on some simulation and some uh, AI, you know, thoughtfully and uh, purposely calculated out that snowflake, that individual snowflake to fall from here to there. Um, you get yeah. caught up in that trickiness there that... <laughs> 
Well, you know, I, I don't think that uh, in all my studies, I've come to the conclusion that really there nothing is predetermined. I mean, we, we have tendencies to, uh, for things to happen because of, you know, it's going in a particular direction, but you can change directions. Sure. And one of the things that leads me to believe that is what's called the panda's thumb. You know, the, the panda bear, uh, if, you, if you've ever been to the zoo in Washington, you've seen them sitting down there and they they take this eucalyptus and they kind of run it between their, what looks like their forefinger and their thumb and they skim the leaves off and they eat it. But the panda doesn't have a thumb. The panda is a bear that has all five claws pointing forward. So mm -hmm. this thing that he uses for a thumb is this bone here on there, uh, on the, on the, you know, I guess it's this bone, but it'd be on the fifth finger that is kind of grown out mm -hmm. and, and allows him, it, do, it doesn't have much dexterity, but it's, it's enough sure. for him to be able to make that maneuver. Well, if God had everything all planned out from the beginning, <laughs> would he have, would he have given him a real thumb? Right, you know? right, right. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, uh, I don't think that predestination is it. So anyway. So what, in all your research and everything you've done, what was the big, because I mean, and I got to, I got to hand it to you. You're, you've done an incredible amount of work. Um, but what was the one thing that you researched, if there is one thing or if there's a couple, that you started down a path and you were researching a subject or a, 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 you know, a, a storyline for a book or whatever that you're like, wow, I wasn't expecting to stumble across this and, and sort of change. Well, you know, that takes me back to uh, how this thing also, how my quest to understand what life is really all about and what the true nature reality is and so forth takes me back to I was I was 25 years old or so I'm not sure exactly it was, I was in my mid-20s I lived in an apartment with two other guys we were all you know we, none of us were married and uh, I had a really bad case of the flu it was a Saturday night you know and when you're 25 you don't want to be home in bed <laughs> on Saturday night but I was because I was really feeling bad and I was reading a book and I heard it was an apartment on two, two floors. And I heard some people come, come in downstairs. And, you know, after a while I heard some more people come in downstairs. And then after a while there was kind of a din coming up from downstairs. <laughs> so there was a party going on there. So I didn't feel good at all, but I got up and I got dressed and I went downstairs and I, you know, I had a few drinks and I, you know, I had uh, maybe a little smoking, a little bit of that uh, sure. weed kind of stuff. And then I just, I couldn't hardly stand up anymore. I was just knee walked back up to my bed <laughs> and I popped down on it. And it, it was, it felt like it started spinning, you know, like a helicopter blade or something. And all of a sudden I just popped out and I was up near the ceiling. And I was looking at the little cracks with little dirt in the cracks. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And I looked down, and I saw my body on the bed that looked like roadkill. Oh, wow. And, and, and it was like I had an epiphany at that moment. Because I'd been brought up to think, you know, that my parents were 
scientific materialists. They bought into the whole thing where if you couldn't see it under a microscope, it didn't exist. Sure. And and so I looked down and I realized that I'm not my body. And I thought all that <laughs> those years that I was my body, but I'm not my body. I'm a, I'm my consciousness. And that's what got me going. And then a few years later, uh, somehow or other, I happened to stumble upon a book called uh, Life After Life by Raymond Moody. And I read that thing in one sitting. And from then on, I was like, I got to find out what's going on. Here. Sure. And I joined the Rosicrucian Society, which is a society of mystics that uh, study metaphysical laws. I took all their courses and became a, an adept, I guess is what they call it. But, uh, and then I had a podcast like you, only it was, um, we called it internet radio back then, about sure. 15, 20 years ago. And I, for three years, and I interviewed quantum physicists, near-death survivors, um, <clears throat> psychics, uh, all kinds of people that were into this sort of thing. And I just learned an awful lot, and I read an awful lot, started writing books about it. So there you go. That's how it all happened. So what's your thought overall on psychics? There's one that I always get stumbled upon whenever anybody starts talking about it. Because it seems to me, and uh, I, I'm just going to be, I'm very skeptical of psychics. Because uh, it seems like there's a lot of people that get um, their money taken by people that tell them things they already know. And they're amazed by that. And I've very seldom come across somebody that went to a psychic and was given something that they didn't already know. That It's kind of a weird thing for me. It's like, well, I could just look at a yearbook and tell you most of the same thing. That so. Well, you know, I think uh, that there are definitely a lot of uh, charlatans out there. Sure. No question about it. But I think that there probably are some people who have that ability. And the reason I do is that there's an outfit called the Windbridge Institute. And what the Windbridge Institute does is uh, use scientific methods, double blind tests to study whether or not, to find out whether or not a psychic can really mm -hmm. do what they say. Sure. They can do. And they actually will uh, give some kind of accreditation or something or other to somebody who passes through their uh, whole rigmarole. And uh, this was started by a woman whose name, I think her name is Julie Bichelle, and I interviewed her twice on that uh, internet radio show I had. Uh, she is a PhD in pharmacology. And of course, pharmacology, for a whole big part of that, that is testing drugs using double blind sure. tests where they have a placebo and then they have the real thing and you know they they uh, see which ones work and her mother apparently committed suicide and so Julie wanted to find out uh, you know if her mother was if there was life after death and <laughs> right. around or whether it was that was it and so she got into this thing and uh, started using her techniques that she used in pharmacology to, to test psychics. And they have, you know, she, her conclusion, and she's published papers in, in uh, you know, respected journals uh, on this. Uh, you know, there are some people who can do it. Sure. Probably most of them are charlatans. Sure. <laughs> so when the people that can do it, what, what do they 
what are they able to share, I guess, is what, what I always wonder about. I mean, well, the way they set up, she sets up these experiments. Uh, she, it, it has to be, she has an intermediary where you've got the psychic, you've got a person who wants to communicate with a loved one mm -hmm. and the person in the middle who doesn't know anything about anything. And, and that's the one who asks the question. So, because one of the things that you, you mentioned is that maybe, maybe they do have psychic, ability, psychic abilities, but they're reading that person who's asking the question. Sure, mind. sure, sure, sure. Not communicating with the, with the uh, disembodied entity, the dead <laughs> person. So uh, uh, she is, apparently they are, you know, they, she has a way of ranking it, but they're able to give information that the psychic and the individual doing the questioning could have, would have no way. Okay. And uh, so basically the, the psychic is removed from whoever the person is that's providing the information and right. in between, there's an independent person that couldn't have any idea either way. Yeah. So, right, right, and uh, it's not going to give clues by you know, sure. oh, you know how they react. <laughs> right, 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 right. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so through through all of that, how do you think like a psychic connects to what we were going back to talk like reincarnation? So, if you, if there if it's possible that a person can pass away. And then a child can be born and, and either be the same person and tap into that stream of consciousness. It doesn't seem completely impossible if that's, you know, a real thing that some other person can just tap into that. Like they're, you know, tapping into an internet stream somewhere and, and sort of. Yeah. You know, something. And there, that may be, I mean, I don't think uh, anybody knows for sure. And one of the one of the things that is possible on the psychic business that I was just talking about is that it's not so much the disembodied dead person mm -hmm. that they're communicating with; it's that there's a a whole memory bank, what Edgar Casey called the Akashic Records, sure. out there that has all that information in it, and that's where they're getting it. So you know, and you can't be sure. That it's one or the other, I don't guess. But uh, yeah, it may be that uh, there there's some of that where, you know, it's uh, there's a ocean of consciousness and all these things are floating around in it, and you you grab a little of this, a little of that, and you incarnate. <laughs> Maybe sure. so. Who knows? Yes. But there are people who report, and in, and into these children with past lives uh, research the time between um, incarnations, you know, what they were doing in that other realm. Sure. So there was a different... Life between lives. Yes, yeah. yes, okay. And what yeah. do they report? Is it like a normal life, like they were on Earth, or is it like some other... No, it's... Uh, typically, they talk about being in a, uh, a, gr a group of like-minded souls who are kind of like a soul group that uh, are together when they're not incarnated. And they spend a lot of times, you know, studying and researching and doing whatever it is they enjoy doing. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> 
exactly. I have, I've never, I, you know, I've, I've had uh, readings done by psychics that uh, have told me about past lives that I have had that seem to be pretty, you know, <laughs> make sense to me, but who knows? You never know. So, it, and all the research, all right, this is a two-part question. In all the research you've done about the afterlife and reincarnation and, and uh, everything that goes along with it, what do you think happens and what do you hope happens when someone passes away? What I think happens is that uh, when someone is on their deathbed, uh, typically, and this I've you know, talked to nurses and so forth who are often at these sure. situations, uh, the, the person who is passing away will typically have someone who has gone before come and greet them and help, you know, meet them as they're leaving sure. their body. And then often they'll, they'll be kind of back and forth for a little while where they'll say, you know, Bobby is, has come to get me, you know, and then she'll mm -hmm. kind of get better for a little bit and then she'll go back to it. And eventually they, so they go off and the near death experience is typical of going, passing through what seems like a tunnel toward a light and they reach a, uh, what uh, some people have called a reception center where uh, they're sort of processed. <laughs> they may meet their guardian angels or guides, depending on what, you know, whether you're looking at it from a religious standpoint or not. And, uh, and relatives that have gone before who they were close to when they were here on earth. And then typically they will have a past life review where it's not a judgment in the sense that, you know, God is standing there pointing his finger and saying, you did this sure. wrong. <laughs> it's more like you see and feel what happened, both from your own point of view and from the point of view of other people who were involved. So if you were mean to somebody, <laughs> if you hurt them in some way, emotionally or whatever, you will feel what they felt. Okay. And, uh, it's more of a learning experience of, you know, this, uh, you know, this is what, these are the things you did right. You, I mean, you decide for yourself. Nobody tells you this. This is your sure. reaction to it. This you know, was I made the right decision there. You know, I could have gone a different direction there. I should have been nicer to Jane, but, you know, All right. and, and so on. And you, so you have the past life for you. And then you go on to a place that is, typically with other people who are in the same kind of vibration as you are. So if you're a bad guy and you're, a, you know, Adolf Hitler or, or Eichmann or somebody like that, sure. you're going to go be around people like that. That's not really hell because it's a place where you feel comfortable. You just, you feel comfortable with other people like you. Sure. And uh, that's where you spend the time between lives and eventually Somebody comes to you and says, you know, it's about time for you to incarnate again. You know, let's go look and see what's available. <laughs> sure. What, what, what happens? Can you imagine getting there and you you walk into the room and there's Hitler and Jeffrey Dahmer and all that? You're like, oh, no. I was not a good well, person. I, I, I thought I was better than this. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So then, oh, you still there? 
Oh, there yeah. you go. Yeah. It froze up for a second. Um, so then from there, basically, so this is a conversation I had with my daughter a couple weeks ago, and uh, she's almost 10. And, uh, you know, we we haven't raised her any, in any sort of religion. She's gone to church a few times with her friends and kind of has a general idea of what, what's going on there. And we're driving along, and, and she asked me something like, um, maybe somebody had passed away. But basically, we get onto this conversation of, do you go to heaven or hell? And I'm like, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't even know what to tell you, kid. And she's like, well, it just seems weird to me. Like, you go into the clouds or you go into the fire or earth or what? And I, so I, I kind of just said, you know, some people believe if you live a good life, you get to another, live another good life and come back. If you live a bad life, you get to come back in a, a circumstance that's not as great and you get to work towards being better. And every time you lived a good life, you get a little better life the next time. She's quiet for a little bit. And she's like, well, that makes sense. And I'm like, yeah. Well, I think that's probably pretty close to to accurate. Um, I think that we do create karma, and uh, that we, when we come back, we have to deal with it. But I think too that karma is a little bit misunderstood by a lot of people in the sense that they think of it as, you know, I did bad stuff, so now I got to have let bad stuff's going to happen to me to to pay me back. It's sort of like a a you know, tit for tat kind of thing, where it's more that karma is a kind of a teaching thing in that once you uh, kind of change who you are, you, you, you stop the karma. Let me give you an example. Suppose you're um, someone who, we know we've all known people who seem to have a way of attracting someone to them who's not right for them. Sure. And, you know, they maybe abuse them either physically or psychologically. Sure. And, and then and one after the other, you know. Okay, so that person might say, well, it's my karma. I'm, I'm attracting that kind of person because, you know, it's, it's a karmic debt that I'm paying. Well, that's not necessarily true. More likely, I think, that that person who's attracting the wrong kind of people to them has a low opinion of themselves and they attract someone to them that has the same low opinion of them that they have. And so the way to overcome that karma is not just to live through it and and suffer, but to change how you think about yourself and feel about yourself. And that, you know, I don't want to have that kind of person around because I'm, I'm a good person and I, you know, I've got qualities and so on and so forth. I'm a spiritual being having a, uh, physical experience right now, and you know I'm I'm a good person. So sure. they got it by they overcome the karma by changing how they feel about themselves in that case. Sure, and that and that kind of leads us into some of your other books where you have a lot of. Uh, I I always hate the word self help. I that I don't know why I don't like that term. I don't know what it is about it. it drives me crazy. But you do you do have some of the the self help yeah. books in that genre. So that's one of the things that I, I've always been uh, very interested in when you come to a self-help book. And this is one of the problems I have with a lot of them because I've I read a million books through the years. And it always seems like every book is told in the – and I haven't read yours, so I, I don't know. So you can <laughs> – it's always told, told from the, the first-person view. So I had this apple, 
and I had this window, and I threw this apple out the window. It landed outside in the in the grass that was fertile, and an apple tree grew, and I sold the apples, and I got rich. And I <laughs> okay. look at those stories, and I'm like, well, that's great, but some people don't have apples or a window or ground outside or even an arm to throw it with. And uh, how do you, how do you uh, square all that? when you're trying to explain to somebody or, or teach somebody how to move forward, because the, the human experience is so vast and varied that it's, it seems really tough to try and. What I try to do is communicate that. Well, my self-help books come from (laughs) metaphysical. Sure. And the basic law, the first law and the most, important and basic law of metaphysics is like attracts like. And so what you have in your mind, your makeup, your beliefs, your opinions, your uh, thoughts about yourself is what is how you create your reality. You attract to yourself what you are inside, what your mind, what your beliefs are and what your opinions are and so forth. So like I said, the woman or man who attracts someone to them who abuses them, that's because of their opinion of themselves and what's in their mind. And so if you want to change and have a better life than the one you've got, when you look around and think, you know, I, I don't particularly like this, what I've got here. The way you do that is you change what's in your mind. You change your opinion of yourself. You um, change your opinions about others. When you come upon somebody that really kind of ticks you off and sets you off, triggers you is the word I like to use. The reason that probably happens is because that person has qualities that you have that you don't like about yourself. True. And uh, so... What I try to do is open people's mind to that. It's your beliefs that create your reality. It's your, you know, if you're going to be a doctor, you've got to go to medical school and so forth. I'm not saying that. Sure. You can uh, (laughs) skip that part. But uh, you can certainly, uh, if you examine your beliefs, you can change them. The thing that is, we often don't really realize what our beliefs are until Mm -hmm. something triggers us or unless we're open-minded and looking around and see what's going on and what we're attracted to ourselves. And that's what I try to encourage people to do mainly in my books is to realize that uh, fears are another thing that, that, that create our reality. It's part of us. And there are six basic fears. There's the fear of um, poverty, the fear of, uh, of uh, loss of love, the fear of, uh, old age, the fear of death, the fear of, uh, uh, I can't think of them all, there's six of them, but those things, because of those fears, can bring bad stuff on us, because what we think about and dwell on is usually what happens to us. We bring it on ourselves, like attracts like. And uh, and all I'm trying to do with my books, typically, is just open people's minds so they can see that, and then they sure. can do something about it. Sure. So when, uh, 
when you write a book like that, do you have a specific, like, this is what I always wonder. Do you have like a person in mind that is in real life that you're like, this is the person that I'm writing this book for. And it's obviously going to universally apply to everybody like that. Or do you have like a universal message that you're sort of trying to. I think it's more the universal message. I, you know, somebody who is, um, you know, a scientific, a scientific materialist who believes that only matter exists or a Christian who is a Christian fundamentalist and believes that everything that's said in the Bible is absolute sure. truth, literally, are not going to get anything out of my books. Because they're going to sure. read about two pages and they're going to throw down, this is trash. You know? But I think someone who's open-minded and believes that, uh, you know, maybe some of the things I'm saying could be true can get a lot out of Sure. One of the they got to read it with an open mind. I I've I think back through the years and different things I've read, and even if I didn't embrace the entire book, there was usually a few nuggets out of every book that you you it changes how you think about things. There it could be a chapter or even a line in a book that you're like I've never really thought of life that way or uh, this yeah. situation like that. And I think it's very valuable to, you know, when people do write things like that. So yeah. Yeah. I think it's great. So something else I wanted to ask you about when I was going through your biography is that you were, you, you were involved in creating the gecko in right. some way, shape or form. I I'm curious about that. <clears throat> yeah. Well, the, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, my career <laughs> was, and advertising, I still do a little of that, but you know, for a long time. And the Geico Gecko, the re, the Geico stands for Government Employees Insurance Corporation. I did not know that. <laughs> started up around Washington D.C. and you know, a lot of people working in the government around Washington D.C. Mm -hmm. and it was mainly for government employees. But then they expanded out. And, uh, you know, we went after them for a long time to try to get them to get as an advertising account. Finally did. And uh, so, you know, this is 25 years ago or so. And we uh, wanted to introduce this brand to the world, to the public. And the idea of, uh, you know, 15 minutes will save you 15% of your car insurance. But how do you get people to, when, when we did research, we found that people couldn't pronounce the name Geico, G uh -huh. G E I C O, Government Employees Insurance Company. So <laughs> that's how we. Some people would call, would look at that word and call it Gecko. Makes sense. Instead of Geico. Yeah. So we just decided to go with that, and you know, create this little character who, what. An advertiser we call a mnemonic device, something a memory device. Mm -hmm. uh, this little—it's <laughs> not really a lizard. He's a uh, <laughs> whatever the hell they are down in uh, Australia, um, and uh, that way we could get people to <laughs> pronounce the name and remember the name. So that was what it was all about. And he's still around after all these it's, years. Yeah, it's staying. So <laughs> what was the what was the how was that received when you guys came to him? They're like, we have this idea. Um, we have this little salamander they, they looking. Thought it was very clever because you know we, we used the research. I mean, we had we do focus groups and stuff, and we videotape them and put together a presentation. That's how we would sell something like that. You know, people, 
the people in the focus group say, oh yeah, that's good. Sure. That's our customer there. He thinks it's good. <laughs> sure. So how much has, as you watched the past 25 years since when you created that, has the advertising landscape changed? Because it seems oh, it's like no, it's, it's such a different animal now. It is. It's totally different than, than when I was really active in the business. And with all the social media and uh, Google and Facebook and Snapchat and all <laughs> Instagram, I mean, it's really a totally different thing. I mean, it used to be, well, when I first started this business, there were like ABC, NBC, CBS, and that was really kind of it, except PBS didn't even take ads. Mm -hmm. And uh, now, you know, you turn, you how many channels you got on TV? Right. It used to be that you could, uh, you know, run ads on network television everybody was standing around the uh, co- a coffee, uh, coffee machine in the morning talking about it but now it's so segmented and it's just a totally different landscape than it was back then there's something weird that the something like the geico seems creative and fun and um i don't know what the word is exactly but it it was something smart and everything now feels very calculated. <laughs> I don't know. Probably it, is calculated. Yeah, it, well, it obviously is. Um, so, and all these ads that chase you around on the uh, internet. You know, they they say we got cookies. Well, they when when they've got a cookie, they've got you because you're gonna if you go look at uh, I don't know, uh, pick something golf clubs on Amazon. You're gonna be having golf clubs chasing you around for the next hour right. and a week. And I hate when that works too. I hate after I've seen it the twentieth time. And I'm like, oh damn it! I'm going to order that. It, it always upsets me. So I, another question for you. So if somebody wanted to get into writing books, how would you? So obviously you wrote your first book at some point, I would assume, because yeah, everybody has their first one. Yeah. So I, I talk to a fair amount of people who are authors or want to be authors, and uh, how would you? start like if, if you had an idea of a book you wanted to write what would be the first step to to well the first book i wrote uh was a long time ago started it in about 1983 and uh i had an idea i didn't have the whole book in my mind i, I now when i write a book I, I usually have a pretty good idea of whole thing but Mm -hmm. when i first wrote one i just it was an idea i had that uh this woman had a something happened to her when she was a child and she couldn't really bring it to her consciousness it was a novel Mm -hmm. and that was the idea that i had you know and how and her and then i just built on that but the way i did it was uh i would get up a little an hour early I just get up at six o'clock instead of seven o'clock and I would write for an hour and then I'd take my shower and go to work and I did that every day uh, unless I had to be out of town or something mm-hmm. and when you you know and maybe I would write a page or a page and a half a day but you know if you write a page or a page and a half a day in a year you've got a book right right and and that's how I did it and as I went along this idea about the woman and the past that she couldn't remember because she was only like two or three years old when it happened and her mother 
you know, I realized that maybe her mother was involved and then her mother had disappeared and where was her mother and all this stuff. And it just was like spinning a tale, as they say. And, and mm-hmm. that's the way it worked. It turned out to be a really pretty good book. I, I uh, It's still in print and it's one of my favorites. <laughs> What's the name of that book? It's, well, it's called The Search for Nina Fletcher. The Search for Nina Fletcher. And it... it uh, is a you know the woman and Nina Fletcher is the girl's mother that uh, was with her when she had this thing happen to her. She wonders whether she's dead or whether she's alive, and eventually she goes off, gets some clues, and goes off looking for her. It's a search for Nina Fletcher. It's, it's a pretty good story. So do you do you typically end the story so? Th- we get to the last page and the reader's like, aha, okay, so that's how it ends. Or do you yeah, yeah, try to save uh, more for another book? Good. Yeah, you have to have twists and turns and reveals. And, and Now, uh, I've also written one whodunit. And a whodunit, I think the way to go about that is to know the ending before you start. Mm-hmm. You gotta, you'll get all screwed up if you don't know whodunit. Sure. <laughs> when you sure. start writing it. Sure. Because then you can you can create all kinds of things and red herrings and things that lead people astray. But they've got to be able to figure it out. It's like when they get to the end, they say, they've got to say, "Oh yeah, of course, yes, of course, that was the one." The whole time, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So then, when you're writing a nonfiction book, do you typically research a subject because you're writing a book, or do you research a subject and go, "Oh, I have material for a book, and I need to share this." Yeah, I, it's more the latter. I'm, I'm more like, you know, I can use this stuff that I've already done mm-hmm. to make the points I want to make in this book that uh, that I want to write. Sure. So yeah, if uh, uh, some people are going to see some repetition in that sense, because you know, I'm I've got my point of view about what life and reality is all about, and I I pull that in whenever I'm doing a book, usually. Unless it's, a, I've written some business books, which are totally different thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So after writing and doing all this research, what do you think the point of life is? To evolve, to experience, to to grow. To I think that we all. I think that life is difficult. Um, I think it was the Buddha that said life is suffering, and there was a book I read. 30 years ago called uh, Road Less Traveled, where the first three words of the book, and it's one of my favorites, they're one of the only books I've read two or three times. The first three words of that book are, life is difficult. <laughs> and I think life is difficult because that's how we learn. We, we go through these trials and tests and uh, hardships, and, and we come out at the other end better because of it. I think life is a what's called a uh, a hero's adventure you know where you you've mm-hmm. got the hero who's in his ordinary world and something happens and pulls him into this uh, world that is not his own where he's got to fight and you know the dragons the, the one the uh, story I, I used to illustrate that is the wizard of oz where you've got dorothy and uh the witch wants her dog, you know, so she runs away, but then she comes back and the hurricane comes and she's thrust into Oz and she's 
got to get back home. And she makes friends and she has trials and tribulations, eventually goes into the belly of the whale, which is witch's castle where she gets the broom. And mm-hmm. then she has the dark moment when she learns that the uh, wizard is a frog, mm-hmm. but is able to help her anyway. And she gets back home after all this. And what does she learn? When she starts out, she's singing somewhere over the rainbow, you know, there must be a better place. Right. When she gets home, she finds out there's no place like home. There's no place like home. Sure. Sure. And that's, you know, that's the classic hero's adventure. And that's what life is. It's a hero's adventure. We leave the place that's home, which is the non-physical realm of heaven, if you want to call it. We come here and eventually we return. And when we return, we're wiser than we were when we sure. Do you know what's really interesting in the past, I don't know how many years, maybe 10, and more so... Uh, I'm talking television shows and series. I'm not sure if you watch like the Yellowstone uh, show that's out I've heard now. that's a good one. I haven't been watching it. Uh, I've been but, watching Virgin River with my wife. <laughs> but there's a bunch of them that have come out in the past 10 years where shows used to be, you used to have a wholesome Dorothy type character who their flaw, they had flaws, but all their flaws were endearing. Um, yeah. Where now a lot of the shows and stories that are coming out show these flawed individuals who are kind of, and they're usually bad guys. That's the weird thing. Like you end up cheering. I mean, if you go back and the, the shield and uh, justified and um, pick something from Netflix, they all seem to be like this where the, the main people in the, the story are generally flawed people to the point that they're almost bad guys, but you watch their story go through and you're like, well, they had to kill that person to keep their family safe sort of thing, you know, <laughs> where you sort of see this conflict. And I, I feel like s- storytelling is starting to get a little bit realer, uh, exaggerated, but realer that people are just a conflicted mess of emotions and, and trouble. Well, we are, you know, we are. I mean, that's, uh, we, we, all of us have a dark side, whether we want to admit it or not. And, and I think it's important to, to real, for people to realize that, yeah, they have a dark side. We all do. And it's, it's probably going to make them a better person if they actually face that, sure. realize sure. it, and kind of look into the dark side of themselves and, and come to terms with it. Sure. So, yeah. Um, and what you're saying there also reminds me of some stories where, uh, like the Day of the Jackal or the, what's the one, the Eye of the Needle, where you have the bad guy as the main character. Mm-hmm. And what you're hoping is that he does not succeed. Right. And so that's kind of an inverse or an inverted <laughs> hero's journey kind of story. So. Sure. Well, I think I've used up all your time for tonight. I, I've <laughs> immensely enjoyed this conversation. I, I, I really appreciated talking to you and sitting down. And Well, I've enjoyed it too. And, uh, you know, I, I know you have it live on Facebook, but let me know when it comes out on YouTube or whatever you do with it. Yeah, absolutely. So this was great. And uh, thank you very much. Well, I've enjoyed it. Thank you, John. Yeah, thank you.